0: Welcome to Casey Cast, the Annie E. Casey Foundation's podcast. I'm Lisa Hamilton, Vice President of External Affairs at the Foundation, and I'm so glad you've joined us for a hopefully inspiring and interesting conversation. The Casey Foundation focuses on giving kids what they need: strong families, vibrant communities, and financial stability. In these efforts, the Foundation is fortunate to work with innovators who advance solutions to help kids thrive. Each month, we'll bring you an in-depth conversation with one of these experts, right here on Cast. Being supported at home and in the community is important for all children and youth, especially lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning or queer youth. However, social stigma, family rejection, and discrimination threaten the well-being of LGBTQ youth. And these risks become acute when they enter child welfare and juvenile justice systems that are ill-equipped to help these kids be safe and help them thrive. Today, Ellen Kahn joins us to talk about these issues and the solutions we can use to create more supportive systems. Since 2005, Ellen has served as the director of the Human Rights Campaign Foundation's Children, Youth, and Families program. In her role, she provides national leadership and expertise in public education and advocacy efforts to achieve full equality for LGBTQ families. Ellen is sought out as an expert on LGBTQ adoption, speaking at numerous national and regional conferences, and providing training for hundreds of child welfare and adoption professionals. Welcome, Ellen. We're so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm delighted to join you. First, why don't we discuss what we know from the data about LGBTQ kids who are involved in the child welfare and juvenile justice systems. Sure.
1: Well, um, you know, we don't have quite as much data as we hope to in the future. Uh as as many of you know, uh there aren't required uh data collection for uh uh sexual orientation or gender identity. Um and so, you know, some agencies and organizations and systems have uh innovated to be able to better identify which children and youth uh in their systems of care do identify as part of the LGBT community, but, uh, but by far most do not really have a particular way of identifying and, and sort of tracking uh, the outcomes for those children and how they might differ for from uh, children who identify as uh, heterosexual and cisgender, and I'm happy to review any of these terms. Um, but what we do know from a couple of focused uh, studies Uh, most recently in Los Angeles County, which really is one of the largest um, uh, systems, if you will, uh, that there was a focus study on how uh, LGBTQ youth in Los Angeles uh, Child and Family Services Administration were were faring, and they they had to collect data and be able to identify which of these children and youth identify as LGBTQ, and they found approximately 19% Which is disproportionate in that, uh, you know, estimates are that anywhere from 3 to 5 percent of the general population identify as LGBTQ. Um, Among younger people, it can be um, a little higher, 8 to 10 percent among the younger generation when asked about their sexual orientation and gender identity. But still, even uh, if it is closer to 10 percent, This is, you know, higher uh, representation among out-of-home, youth in out-of-home care.
0: So the statistics that are available suggest that we have disproportionately high rates of LGBTQ youth in foster care systems. Do we know why this is happening?
1: Well, I wanted to just emphasize something you said in the introduction, Lisa, when you talked about, uh, you know, the impact of family rejection and social stigma and discrimination, really three of the, you know, main challenges faced by LGBTQ youth. And that's really kind of, uh, you know, the explanation about why we see disproportionality. Um, And I should mention that, you know, the the LGBTQ youth we're talking about uh, also are typically disproportionately youth of color. So they're, they're youth of color and they're LGBTQ. Um, I think it's just important to remind folks who you know who who it is we're we're talking about um but it's often a result of rejection by either a uh, family of origin or a foster family um or in some cases even an adoptive family at the at the point of them of uh, realizing uh, a child is is lesbian gay bisexual questioning queer transgender gender nonconforming uh, that they may uh, just outright reject that child, um, overt rejection, uh, pack your stuff and get out, you're not my kid anymore, to a more kind of subtle but uh, you know consistent sort of chipping away at their self-esteem, saying disparaging things, mocking them, or trying to quote-unquote change them. And sometimes these young people just need to run um, for safety. And so, You know, I I think those are some of the explanations about why we see a disproportionate number of uh, LGBTQ youth in in out-of-home care. That there is, um, you know, that it it all, you know, it often (laughs) starts uh, at home and and just not being affirmed or accepted for who you
0: are. What are some challenges that LGBTQ kids are facing in foster care?
1: Um, Some of the challenges then uh, in care. Um, you know, we there. There's a real range in the I think knowledge and cultural competency of child welfare professionals across the country. I think more and more folks are really eager to learn more and want to be more supportive, want to be better allies, want to be better at their at their job in supporting LGBTQ youth. But um, you know, a lot of organizations haven't prioritized. Um, training, professional development for their staff with regard to working with LGBTQ youth. So there's sometimes, you know, a, l- a lack of understanding, not, well, wh- what should I be doing? What is different for these kids? Um, how can I be more effective? Um, I think there's also quite a learning curve around um, supporting transgender children and youth in particular, because um, the, you know, gender identity as a as a concept um, is, is still not quite as familiar to people. As is sexual orientation. You know, we talk about sexual orientation. I think most people kind of understand we're talking about, you know, someone's uh, who, who you're attracted to, who you're likely to be um, uh, uh, involved in sexual behavior with, um, or who you, who, where your desires are, even if you're not acting on that sexually. Um, everybody, you know, I think understands and probably ha- knows someone who's gay, lesbian, or bisexual. But knowing someone who's transgender or who's gender non-binary, um, you know that's not true. I think only about uh, 25 to 30 percent of people in a recent poll um, said they personally know someone who's transgender. So
0: education and professional development on this issue is important.
1: So I think there's a learning curve, and uh, so even when folks are motivated to do right, to to be supportive. Um, if they just simply do not understand what it means to be transgender and what a young person might need uh then they they can't they can't do so well and so you know we see um often uh you know children who are LGBTQ um have longer periods of time in out of home care uh they have more uh, more more placements over time and um higher rates of uh, aging out of care i think the real uh, challenge there or the gap there is that um we don't have enough uh, resource families who are um uh, who are prepared to and, and frankly expected to be uh, an affirming safe placement for lgbtq youth and so so finding it at the you know we don't want to you know re-traumatize these kids by placing them with a family who is going to reject them or, or just simply not support them in their LGBTQ identity where, you know, we often don't know who of our, you know, who among our licensed families um, is actually really ready and willing and able to be that affirming safe family.
0: Hmm. So you, you mentioned several things um, that uh, we, need to pay attention to in order to help these young people feel safe and to help them be successful. And um, perhaps we should start with what can be done to support them in their families of origin. Um, it sounds like uh, young people may come into care if there has been an experience around family rejection. Um, what does the Human, Re- uh, Human Rights Campaign uh, do in partnership with foster care agencies to, to support young people and their families?
1: Sure, that's a great question and it, and it is really important. Um, you know, for families that are, you know, facing a lot of uh of stressors um and um and you know just just challenged in, in many ways um to to function well, uh sometimes having a child uh, come out as LGBTQ or for the family to just be aware that one of their kids is or may likely be LGBTQ can, can, you know, just be in some cases, I've heard young people say that they felt it was sort of the last straw for their family. It was like, we can't deal with this right now. It's just too much. Um, but I think, so I think that is, you know, a reality that it, it, it's, it just can be, um, it can just add to um, to, to, a, to a sort of challenged uh, family system. Um, I think, you know, what we've learned from a lot, not we, the Human Rights Campaign hasn't done direct research or worked directly with families. We, you know, we're kind of more macro in our work. But looking at the great work of um, organizations like um, the Ruth Ellis Center in Detroit and the great research that's been led by Dr. Caitlin Ryan and her family acceptance project, which is based at uh University of California San Francisco, when they really do the deep work and like longitudinal uh, research with families of lgbtq young people um you know what 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 you see is a fairly common sort of trajectory, and it's i think very important for all of us who work with young people to 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 remember this that many parents who are initially rejecting um who just have that sort of reflex um, based on their existing beliefs, what they've been taught all their lives, their own, you know, sort of homophobic or transphobic feelings or, you know, beliefs that are rooted in a particular religious uh, tradition. You know, many do uh, kind of initially reject their children or act in a very rejecting way, uh, say hurtful things, that kind of thing. Um, but when you really look at the that's not always where things end. Um, those 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 parents, uh, like any of us, can and often do evolve in our um, sort of thoughts and ideas and beliefs about sex orientation and gender identity.
0: It's worth noting that when we talk about education and training here it's across the board in systems and organizations but also in homes and families.
1: when you you know when you really you know look at whether, you you know the choice between you know losing a child um and versus you know kind of just pushing through your own discomfort and finding a way to um stay open and keep your heart open many parents do make their way to opening their hearts you know they may not be the kind of parents who want to wave a rainbow flag and go to meetings and talk about how proud they are of their gay children but they're they find a place where they can, you know, continue to have the belief system they have um, and maybe not totally understand where their child's coming from, but say, you know, I love you, I'll always be your mother, I'll always be your father, I'll always be here for you, and we'll get through this. Like that, We see a lot of parents move in that direction. So I think it's important for professionals to um, to not give up right away on family members who are... Uh, even quite overtly rejecting of an LGBTQ child or family member, you know, obviously, you know, if it's not safe for a gay or lesbian or bi or trans kid to be in a system like that, you know, you've got to you've got to remove them from that immediate uh, danger and risk. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't some opportunity. And sometimes we see that, you know, maybe there's a grandparent or or one of the parents is is actually much more willing to kind of, you know, do their work and move along and and be more open. And, you know, they have to negotiate a family system, which maybe, a, a, you know, another family member or a spouse is much more vehemently anti-gay, and they have to sort of figure that out, and it takes some time. Um, uh, but, you know, I think there's, there's opportunity to educate parents, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, birth families or foster adoptive parents you know most of us need education we don't under, we don't know that much about what it's like to be lgbtq we don't know what our kids are facing we don't know what their needs are uh for us to advocate for them in schools and how to support them around their sexual health needs or how to help them navigate relationships so um you know i think as we're getting to know family members and getting to know how they view um, you know, aspects of their children's lives like sexual orientation and gender identity. That's an opportunity for us to to educate them, to, you know, get to know how they think about these things and to maybe recommend um, videos they could look at or things they could read or other parents they could talk to.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Well, um, we know that young people come into the foster care system for a variety of reasons, not not solely because of uh, family rejection. Um so I wonder what um your organization does to help agencies, uh, foster care agencies be more reso- be more responsive to the needs of uh LGBTQ youth.
1: Yes. Um, well, we are we uh, for about oh, 11 years now. We've um, had a program called All Children, All Families. In fact, we we collaborate with um, some of your colleagues at EKC and we're grateful for that. We help agencies put in place uh, policies and practices that optimize LGBTQ inclusion and LGBTQ cultural competence and within that whole scope of what we do uh within the framework of helping agencies move along and, and really achieve you know the best practices uh one area of focus for example is um how they um how they recruit families and how they prepare families in their sort of pre-service process and then on even ongoing you know post placement to be affirming safe supportive families for lgbtq youth
0: From your perspective with this work, what is one area that's ripe for improvement?
1: You know, one of the things we really would like to see change in practice across the board is, you know, better uh, assessing um, uh, one's willingness and or ability to um to have a an LGBT child uh placed with them. You know, in the same way we wanna understand how uh how resource families see themselves as being, you know, um able to parent certain ch- children with certain backgrounds or experiences or needs, I think we'd want to see routinely uh a similar set of questions about, you know, what are your you know, how do you see yourself as, you know, a resource for a child who might be lesbian or gay or bisexual, or, you know, what about a child who's transgender or exploring their gender identity? Um, What do you think you bring to the table for for children in this community? Um, What do you think you would need to learn or to to be able to to be an affirming, safe parent if you're not sure right now you could be? Um, That also gives you the opportunity if someone says, I really don't think I would be or wouldn't want to be. To dig in a little bit, well, what, you know, what would get in the way and, and are there some yellow or red flags, um, you know, the, around, around a particular family or person that you really need to keep an eye on? Because even though, you know, we often, you know, we think of LGBTQ children and youth in care as, you know, being old enough to self-identify, to say, I am same-sex attracted or I am a transgender child uh, you know, many you know, we don't know who's gonna be LGBTQ if we if it if we're, you know, as we mentioned earlier, anywhere from five to ten percent of the population. So when you're placing a three or five or seven year old, you're not thinking about their sexual orientation or gender identity per se. But it is important, I think, and we really kind of bring this to the field, to to think about, you know, any of these kids could at some point be same sex attracted or questioning or exploring sexual orientation or gender identity, and do we want to have a sense now of what this resource family, um, you know, how they would approach that? Where would they turn for information or education? What kind of response would they most likely have? You know, I, so those are some of the things we do because we really want to build the pool of resource families who are LGBTQ affirming to really make that sort of the, the you know, the, the ideal so that you have, um, you know, options, many, many options for LGBTQ children and youth who are from different backgrounds, who are different ages, who are who live in different parts of the country. So that's one example.
0: Great. What might be different for a relative, caregiver, or a foster family in caring for a child who is LGBTQ?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I think, you know, if, um, if there are other children in the family, um, you know, I think it, it's important to know, whether those other children have already formed any kind of um, you know, kind of bias views of LGBTQ people and whether they they as as siblings um would be, you know, where there could be potential conflict there. Um, I think um, you know, I think most relative caregivers and foster families um know the importance of advocating in schools, making sure that Youth who are placed with them um, are get the attention they need, the education they deserve. Um, the added element, if you have an LGBTQ youth in care, is that we know that bullying and harassment of LGBTQ students is probably highest than with any other you know uh, population of students in schools. Um, and so, you know, being able to, you know, advocate effectively with. School counselor, or principal, or a particular teacher—if you know your LGBTQ child is, is in fact, you know, being targeted because of their identity, you know, that might be something to think about. Um, you might think about, um, you know, what are your rules about things like dating or being out with friends in the evening, or, you know, things like sexual health education, learning about HIV prevention, and and are those? Would you? look at those things any differently if you had an LGBTQ child placed with you. So, for example, you know, we want to think about sort of healthy adolescent development, um, you know, and if you would potentially apply different standards to, let's say you have a a lesbian, a 14-year-old lesbian or 15-year-old lesbian placed with you, um, would you, you know, uh, prohibit her from... Uh, dating or spending time with um female friends for example uh in a in, in sort of some different fashion than you might if if she were heterosexual or you know um and and why might that be and are you kind of hindering? Uh, sort of a healthy, normal adolescent development. So, you know, it's just being attuned to some of those things. Those are some examples that come to mind.
0: Great. Thank you. So, I'm curious what role gay, lesbian, bisexual, or or transgender adults could assist in this area, how we are um, recruiting them to be uh, foster families.
1: Sure. Well, this has been uh, a big area of focus for us since we launched All Children, All Families. In fact, when we Launched in 2005, um, the, the question we posed to uh, leaders in child welfare, at literally at a meeting at our DC office, was: How can the Human Rights Campaign, which is the nation's largest um, uh, civil rights organization focused on LGBTQ equality, how can we help to build bridges between the you know thousands and thousands of children um, who need a permanent placement? And the thousands and thousands of LGBTQ adults who we know are interested in and eager to foster or adopt, but still don't know if it's safe to step into that world, if it's if they're going to be treated well and, and welcomed and valued. Now things have changed quite a bit in this, you know, these 11 years. I mean, attitudes and laws and things are, you know, generally better. Um, but we still do, you know, we still do see some disconnects between agencies that need families where they don't have enough families for the kids in their in their uh, in their in care, uh, and the fact that you know, according to one study, the National Family Growth Survey a few years ago, um, two million LGB identified. They didn't ask about gender identity, but two million people who identified as either lesbian, gay, or bisexual said they have an interest in adoption. So if you think about even like the if only like 1% or just a couple percent of those 2 million actually, you know, went went through the entire process of becoming licensed uh, resource families, you know, you're talking about many, many thousands of of, of of families.
0: What is one thing that the Human Rights Campaign is doing to engage this population?
1: One of the things we do when we work with agencies is we we help them look at, really sort of objectively look at, whether there are any barriers, even unintentional, um, to LGBT folks um, participating with their agency.
0: When we're talking about the welfare of LGBTQ youth, why is it important to engage gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender adults?
1: So Look at your website and, you know, what kind of messages do you have about the families you recruit and welcome? You know, do you see diverse images of families? Do you see... Um, you know, words around, we don't discriminate, you know, look at the literature you bring out to recruitment events. Um, do you um, try to connect with the local LGBT community? Do you look for, you know, the LGBT film festivals coming to town and thousands of people come to these movies? Um, so first we help to sort of look at what you're doing well, maybe where you can make some improvements in your in your routine recruitment activities so that they become welcoming and inclusive.
0: When we're talking about the welfare of LGBTQ youth, why is it important to engage gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender adults?
1: You know, it's not just a matter of, you know, building up the numbers of, of resource families. And we don't just want agencies to welcome LGBTQ adults because they want families to place uh, for placement of LGBTQ youth, because that's not always going to be the best placement. Um, but it's really because we, you know, we see a lot of strengths and resiliency in the LGBT community. Um, you know, many of us were rejected by our families of origin or estranged from our families because they didn't like who we were. Um many of us recreated families you know we there's a you know a term family families of choice or family by choice which is a very common experience in the lgbt community where you know we create families where it's not that we share dna but we share um you know values and a sense of connection and belonging so you know having some ability to empathize and understand perhaps a little better or differently what some of these young people are going through you know Stigma. We've experienced stigma. Um, We have experienced that sense of being kind of outsiders from our family or not or no longer connected to our family of origin. Um, And just, you know, knowing how to advocate for what we need. One of the one of my favorite examples is, um, you know, when 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 the AIDS epidemic, as we refer to it years ago, really first landed in the U.S., we were primarily seeing that um in gay men and you know just a very like a decimation of uh communities of gay men um and it was uh it, it we were really strangers that sort of stepped in to take care of of others i mean i as a lesbian at the time in the mid 80s um a, a budding social worker uh my peers and I kind of dropped everything and just stepped in like we volunteered, we helped, we we took care of friends, we were at the bedside of people whose own families had rejected them, but there we were, you know, feeding them and taking them to doctor's appointments and wiping their brows and, and helping them with daily, you know, just activities of daily living. And I, you know, you think about, you know, isn't that the kind of um, like commitment and nurturing you would want uh, for us to bring to the table when we talk about the children and youth who are waiting for a permanent family.
0: Thank you so much for for lifting up the strengths in a community that could help all young people uh, thrive. That's wonderful. So we've talked a lot about child welfare. Why don't we switch gears for a minute and talk a bit about the juvenile justice system, another uh, set of agencies that uh, your organization works with. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges for LGBTQ youth involved in the juvenile justice system? Sure, you know, in some ways,
1: um, you know, there's some universal challenges, um, and I didn't get to talk about uh, all of those, but I think, you know, where I sort of make some of the analogies with juvenile justice, um, you know, there, there, a lot of LGBTQ youth are mistreated um, when they're, you know, in out-of-home care, also when they're in juvenile justice systems. Um, you know, there sometimes there's just unchecked anti-LGBT animus that can be coming from, uh, you know, folks who are, you know, essentially paid to and charged with keeping kids safe. Uh, but often we hear from young people that, you know, they were being some, you know, a young person was being targeted and mocked and and ridiculed or even physically harmed. Uh, because of their sexual orientation and gender identity and you know the staff members and security guards and other folks who were around within earshot and, and eyesight of this just sort of turned their backs or in some in some cases even fuel fuel the fire a little bit. So we we really see kind of um, an indifference or a even a hostility on the part of, you know, some employees of these systems. Um Again, I feel like it's mainly a training issue, but also, you know, leadership really has to make more clear the the policies um, that discrimination is not tolerated.
0: Are there any challenges that LGBTQ youth face that are unique to the juvenile justice system?
1: Um, We do see, I think, some of the greatest challenges with transgender or gender non-binary young people in the juvenile justice system where, you know, we still see cases where, a transgender girl will be forced to um be put in a male uh in male uh center or in male detention um it's incredibly uh unsafe for her um she is targeted um she is humiliated um for you know there might be a case where um if this young person has been taking Um, uh, hormone blockers or some other kind of medication related to gender-affirming care. They may be prevented from accessing that, which can have quite detrimental effects both physically and emotionally. Um, So I think that's where, you know, we see some of the greatest challenges. Um, And I think that, again, even just sort of looking at what are some of the sort of factors that lead to you know, maybe a disproportionate number of LGBTQ youth finding themselves interfacing with juvenile justice is, you know, there are different standards approach to um, some of the activities like um, for young people who are on the on the streets, runaway or homeless youth. Again, LGBTQ um, homeless youth, we believe, make up anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of that population of homeless youth. That's, you know, and it, that's you know, a crisis, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, for young people in the streets, you know, survival sex is, you know, common. And, you know, for uh, for LGBT youth who are engaging in survival sex, um, often in a same-sex situation, they may be uh, exposed to a different type of treatment or sentencing around that than a heterosexual uh, person might be um So there, you know, we see some, uh, you know, differentiation in in sort of treatment and the kind of charges uh, LGBTQ youth face. Um, And, uh, you know, we see often judges uh, are quite harsh on LGBTQ youth, again, often a, you know, based on their personal uh, attitudes, negative attitudes toward LGBTQ people, not based on you know, looking out for the safety and well-being of, of LGBTQ youth. So those are, you know, those are additional factors that we know, we know are, are present uh, uh, way way too often.
0: Hmm. So for, for both youth who may have been or are at risk of getting involved in child welfare or juvenile justice systems, what types of services and supports should a community have available uh, to help LGBTQ youth?
1: Mm-hmm well, I think um there are a couple of things I think you know one is that you know in in all of the sort of uh systems of care that young people typically engage in, from you know uh school based counseling or social services to community based um services um to you know pediatric and other health care services you know a a, a a a good basic level of lgbtq cultural competency i think is quite essential so that you know you you can be you can be out and be you know be authentic and open about who you are and and being being so does not put you in jeopardy does not put you at risk that you there are adults around you who who are intentional about Making sure you're safe and supported. Um, so in you know what I would call the more traditional kind of places, young people interface in school experience, um, community based activities, recreational, um, uh, boys and girls clubs, you know all those kinds of um, uh, community services and support services, there should be an expectation that LGBTQ youth are treated. Uh, you know, that there's no discrimination, that they're treated in a way that's inclusive, that's supportive, um, that there's, you know, an understanding of what some of these, you know, unique issues are for LGBTQ youth so they can be addressed as well. And that beyond the traditional, like really raising the bar within these traditional systems and institutions, I think, you know, we often want to see and do see in sort of the larger cities uh, that have more resources, um, support groups and organizations specifically for LGBTQ youth, and that those organizations uh, provide additional support. Um, They help young people find connections um, to peers, um, to people with greater expertise, um, uh, to feel a place where they really belong. And those centers and programs also uh, become a resource for those traditional service providers. You know, in a, an example in Washington D.C., where I where I work and live, um, the uh, an organization called Smile, uh, the Sexual Minority Youth Assistance League. It's been around for decades. Um, you know, they are kind of the go-to organization for, you know, uh, say a school principal who wants to bring in an expert to help them address anti-LGBT bullying or, a you know, a, a pediatric practice that wants to better understand um, how to support younger children and their families who might be coming out. Um, and, you know, that so having those kind of experts and kind of um, additional resources in a community, I think for organizations that can um, have the funding to hire someone who's specifically charged with being like an LGBTQ ombudsman or liaison or someone who coordinates programs for the LGBT community. That's a way to, I think, build internal capacity within an organization. Um, Those are a few things that come to mind.
0: Great. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for the work that you and the Human Rights Campaign are doing to help systems and communities and families be more supportive of LGBTQ youth.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for your strong partnership in helping us do that.
0: Our pleasure. Well, thanks for talking with us, Ellen. And I want to thank our listeners for joining as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, rate our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can also ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter using the CaseyCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and find notes for today's show, visit us online at aecf.org forward slash podcast and follow the Casey Foundation on Twitter at AECF News. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.